This is Archive Atlanta, episode 133, Virginia Highland. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week we have another neighborhood to check off the list, and one that I have a special connection to. And no, not because I live there, although I wish I did, but because when I moved to Georgia at the end of 2006, Virginia Highland was the place to go out. When my best friend moved to Atlanta in 2013, she asked me to find her an apartment, and I only looked in this neighborhood, A, because I told her it was the place to go out, but also the older apartments reminded me so much of the apartments in New York City. So this week, I'm covering as much as I can about Virginia Highland, how it was formed, when, why along with well-known schools, homes, churches, and parks. Bordered on the south by Ponce de Leon, the east by Druid Hills, Midtown and the Beltline on the west side, and Morningside on the north. The story of Virginia Highland begins with the native people that had lived on this land for thousands of years before the arrival of Europeans. The final Muscogee Treaty was in the 1820s, but before that, in 1812, there was a Revolutionary War veteran named William Zachary who owned much of this modern-day Virginia Highland, which he used as farmland. In 1822, he sold some of that land to Richard Copeland Todd, a name that lives on in the neighborhood's history today. Todd was from Chester, South Carolina, and after purchasing this land, he built a farmhouse that stood on today's Greenwood Avenue. It was destroyed by fire in 1910, and today there is an apartment building in that spot. We have to remember that when Todd was living in this area, the city of Atlanta didn't even exist yet. And if you listen to my episode with Mark Pfeiffer, you know that there was settlement and speculation after the railroad made the announcement that it was coming. But before that, the Atlanta area was really a handful of white landlot owners who had purchased the land for like $20 in taxes after it was taken from the Creek Treaties. Todd's nearest neighbor was Hardy Ive, who owned the 202 and a half acre lot of today's downtown. Hardy Ivy's wife was Richard Todd's sister, and so to connect the two family homesteads, a horse or wagon dirt road existed, uh, more than likely following an already established native path, um, and they called it Todd Road. So the cool thing about Todd Road is that a small fraction of it still exists in Virginia Highland, but also next to Pond City Market. And the little sliver that's next to Pond City Market isn't a road you can actually go on. It's kind of tucked inside a condo complex. You can't drive on it, but it's incredible to look at a map, you know, an aerial map to be able to see these two points that like, oh, wow, I used to be able to travel from here, you know, to this part of Virginia Highland on this road that doesn't exist anymore. Another white landowner was Hezekiah Cheshire, whose homestead was between Highland Terrace and Amsterdam. Now, post-Civil War, he purchased an additional 40 acres actually from the Todd family, and um, they made up sort of the two bigger landowners. Richard Todd died in 1851, and the neighborhood continued to exist as a rural farmland area, but that would change around the turn of the century. What makes Virginia Highlands so unique, in my opinion, is the amount of different small developers that formed in the neighborhood we know today. So if you look at something like Capitol View, which I did an episode, I can't remember right now, that was like a large chunk of land purchased by one person, platted by one person at the same time. And it gives neighborhood continuity. But that is definitely not the Highlands. Virginia Highland comprises of 17 different plats that span a 23-year time period. But before we get to that, we have to talk about streetcars. 
The city of Atlanta's earliest boundaries stretched about a mile in diameter. So this was not city limits, you know, at this time. And it was not accessible to most Atlantans that did not own a horse or have a wagon at their disposal. In the early 1890s, the Fulton County Street Railroad began its nine-mile circle route. This was the city's second electric streetcar line, and you could hop on in downtown Atlanta, and at 15-minute intervals, they would loop you through the beautiful, breezy farmland in the northeast part of the city. This may sound like a weird pastime to us, but imagine Atlanta in the summer without AC. So getting dressed and getting in an open-air streetcar ride was really a popular pastime. And the car would travel along North Boulevard, today it's Monroe, across Virginia Avenue, down Highland, and to Ponce, and just go in a big circle. That line was in service until 1912. Unsurprisingly, wealthy Atlantans began to build summer homes in this area, and one of those people was George Adair. Their summer home was on Roopley Drive and was named Woodcliffe, built around 1895. By 1904, It was his the first piece of land to be platted into a subdivision. 39 lots fit into this little triangle formed by Todd, Adair, and Highland Roads. But the best part is that the Adair residence is still standing on the street today. So today it's separated into five condominiums, which is really not clear from the road. It kind of still looks like a private home. Um, While I could not possibly cover every single subdivision. I don't want to seem like I'm playing favorites here Um, because they were created again over many decades. I will direct you to the Neighborhood Association's website. They have a really great color-coded map. I'm going to try to put a link in the show notes that has names and dates of each subdivision and when. The area was not part of Atlanta until 1909 when the city annexed um, North Avenue to Highland Terrace and then East kind of into Druid Hills. And most of the developments between 1912 and 1914 were literally one block in size. So, you know, Mr. X owns a small piece of land. He gets it plotted. He builds street houses, sells it, and moves on. Just after 1914, the North Park Boulevard development was 64 acres. This was much larger. And then that was separately annexed by the city a year later. So it's developed in a piecemeal way, just like it's being annexed in a piecemeal way. Now, the naming of the area can get really confusing, too. The use of Virginia Highland does not show up in the press until 1919, and that was in an Adair real estate ad. Even through 1930, it was often called Virginia Highland Avenue Section, or just the Virginia Highland Section, and it's also referenced as Virginia Highlands with an S. Obviously, this is all referencing the intersection of the main thoroughfares, Virginia and Highland Avenues. And I'll be honest, I am one of those people that call it the Highlands. I know, I know, you could just stop listening right now, blacklist me from the neighborhood, but that is how I learned it. That's that's what they called it. And I know that mostly it's just the people that live in the neighborhood, I think, that feel really strongly about this. But, you know, I am, I'm on board with it, so I'm trying to correct my terms. And let me share another really quick funny story. Um, when I moved to Atlanta... You know, there's a Virginia Avenue, if you don't know, in Hapeville College Park area. So I came here without no, there was no smartphones yet. So this was the era of like printed out MapQuest directions. And if you're a longtime listener, you also know that I have no sense of direction. So one night, right after I moved here, I'm supposed to meet my friends in the Highlands. And where do I end up? Yes, near the airport. And so I wasn't, I hadn't lived here long enough to, I knew something was wrong. I'm like, this is, 
this is not what the Highlands looks like. I, I think I'm confused. And um, I can't remember. It took me like 30 minutes to redirect myself and figure out how to get to the right place. But anyway, let's go back to annexation. So when the first part of the neighborhood was incorporated in 1909, it took on the responsibility of educating local children. The Highland Park School was built in 1911, part of 10 new Atlanta schools funded by a recent bond issue. It was designed to be through grades one through eight. Um, It cost $40,000 to build, and it was designed by Edward E. Doherty. Inside, there was a manual training room, domestic science room, and two quote-unquote wet weather playrooms. Mrs. Cola Spears was the first principal. Not even two years later, the school was packed and rumors abound that children must sit on the floor, that there were quote-unquote bad fumes that would make the youngest sick. And apparently, the school entered into an agreement with homeowners to lease several houses at Greenwood Avenue and Frederica Streets to accommodate um, more students. So they called this the Greenwood School. It no longer exists. It's really hard to find information about. And this was a Band-Aid solution anyway. So the city ends up passing another bond issue, which was constructing four new high schools, um, eight white elementary and five black elementary. Now, the Highland School was in use until 1972. And so today, these are condo lofts. Virginia Highland's big boom came in the post-World War I area. And I did a mini-episode about Forward Atlanta, but um, in the 1920s here in the city, there was a focused, massive, organized, city-funded marketing campaign to get businesses to come to the South and set up their headquarters in Atlanta. So, so many national and regional offices opened here, including Sears, which today is Ponce City Market, um, and then a huge influx of jobs. Now, jobs mean huge influx of people, which means the need for upper middle class, mainly white housing. And that's why the majority of Atlanta's historic apartment buildings were all constructed in this period, from 1917 through the 20s. And this neighborhood was no different. There are tons of beautiful old apartment buildings scattered through the neighborhood. Some are small, some are duplexes, some are quadplexes. Um, you know, some have 30 apartments. And it honestly, it's one of the best examples of what is called the missing middle housing, which is being advocated for in other parts of Atlanta. But even the private homes in Virginia Highland date to the 1920s. In 1924, the Constitution newspaper published a wonderful, very flattering piece on the neighborhood about how desirable and lovely these homes were. And they were in this, quote, new and rapidly growing residential district upon a gently rising ridge that ensures each site a vista of the most pleasing kind is said to be one of the most attractive situations within the metropolitan district of Atlanta, end quote. And that worked because right after that piece is published, there is an influx in lots being sold and homes being built. In 1924, construction began on a quote-unquote mammoth new apartment hotel along Ponce de Leon Avenue, designed by G. Lloyd Preacher and built by H.J. Carr, the 134 apartments were intended for professionals moving to Atlanta again during that boom in the 20s. It was originally called the 750, but when addresses numbering shifted, it was called the 1050. During the Depression, it was rebranded as the Briarcliff Hotel and Apartments. The development company that built this was run by Asa Candler Jr., who moved his office here in 1931 and maintained a penthouse apartment for his family use. So actually, after Asa sold um, his estate just up the street in 1948, he moved in as well. So this is a really large, beautiful building um, across from the Plaza Theater. It's pretty well known for everyone as a visual landmark. There are some 
local legend before you email me. I know you're going to ask about Al Capone. There's stories of Al Capone's family, and he was in the penitentiary at this time. I have conferred with my sources, and that's just not true, as much as we all want one of these really cool stories to be true. So back to this influx of people um, with more kids, a new school was built. In 1922, the city approved a bond issue for 10 new school buildings. A. Tenike Brown was the architect on staff, and he designed the Romanesque Revival School completed in 1923. So upon its opening, there was room for 630 kids, and instead it had 1,000. I've talked about this in other episodes that involve schools, but most of these buildings were instantly overcrowded. So they decided to um, name it after Samuel Inman. So it was often called Inman School, Samuel Inman School. Um, They did put an addition in 1929, and they did a WPA-funded addition in 1937. Now this, and I might be getting this recent history wrong, because this was a middle school up until very recently, that is now going to be shifted around because of the David T. Howard School opening. So I think it's definitely going to still be a school. They just might be shifting it to a high school. The 1920s also brought us most of Virginia Highland's iconic buildings and churches. Virginia Highland Baptist, which is across the street from the former Inman Middle School, was built in 1923. Today it's just called Virginia Highland Church. Druid Druid Hills Presbyterian uh, which is right on Ponce de Leon, was first completed in 1923, and it was expanded in 1940 and 1964. The first Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church was built in 1924 at the corner of Highland and Lanier. And yes, this is the, today it's a YMCA building, so a lot of people don't realize that was first a church. The Episcopalian Church of Our Savior, uh, which is on Highland, was completed in the 1930s, and that is right across the street from the historic fire station. Speaking of fire station, you guys know my love of the firefighters in Atlanta. Um, One of my favorite episodes is about the fire department history. But in the early 20s, the city was looking for a place to put a new firehouse to serve this booming neighborhood. So fire station number 19 opened in June of 1925, And it's interesting to me because it was designed by a civil engineer, O.F. Kaufman, who actually mainly worked on plat maps. So he, I think he did the plat maps in Capitol View. Um, But I don't know if he was just already working on the plat of that land and just threw in the plans for the firehouse. It's impossible for me to go through each home, church, apartment, commercial structure. um, But I don't want to end this episode without covering some houses that connect to some really amazing history people might not be aware of. The yellow brick home at 1060 Virginia Avenue was built in 1923, and it was designed by Daniel and Buteau. And it was commissioned by Ben R. Paget, who was the owner and general manager of the L.W. Rogers Realty and Trust firm. So this is an example of, like, L.W. Rogers bought this, you know, plot of wooded land in 1922, and they developed all of the grand homes on Virginia Avenue. So that was their development. And so Paget was like, well, you know, I'm going to build my house here in a very prominent, beautiful location. At 1051 Hudson Drive, um, we have one of the homes of Dr. Layla Denmark. And so born, she was born in 1898, accepted to the University of Georgia Medical College on probation because it was so rare to have a woman apply. And in 1928, she was the third woman to graduate with a medical degree. 
she was the first of a lot. I think she was the first female pediatrician in Georgia. Um, she was co-developer of the DPT vaccine. But after she got a residency at Grady, she moved into this house. And then in 1930, I think it was after she had her daughter, she began working from home. So the living room inside was a waiting room, and then they used a bedroom as an exam room. And she practiced in the neighborhood until 1949. So a lot of local people that went to her as their pediatrician have memories of this house. 945 Rupley uh, was a former rental of Constance Curry, Donna McGinty, Jane Stembridge, and Bonnie Kilsing. These were four white women who had moved to Atlanta to work in the civil rights movement, most of them with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And so I posted about this a while ago, but in 1960, they were evicted by their landlord. And so we have the letter, which is amazing, for loud music, drinking, and quote-unquote associating with colored men on a social basis. 811 Ponce de Leon is related to a landmark LGBTQ Supreme Court case. In 1982, Michael Hardwick was living here when he was arrested by Atlanta police in violation of Georgia's sodomy law. There's a much longer story here. I hope I can cover it in a mini-episode one day. Um, but this Supreme Court decision, uh, Bowers versus Hardwick, all started here. In 1964, the Georgia Highway Department announced plans to build Interstate 45. The plan was to connect what is today Freedom Parkway to I-85 and Georgia 400. And they were going to do that by going through Virginia Highland. Just like the story in Inman Park episode, you know, by this time period, the city of Atlanta had experienced white flight, economic disinvestment, and a whole host of other things. And neighborhoods like this were considered dispensable. But also similar to Inman Park, Families had been purchasing homes here, moving back in town, and in 1971, they formed the Virginia Highland Civic Association. So the reason that this is a big deal is because this is the first time the neighborhood boundaries were formally defined and almost created like a, you know, we are this neighborhood. Now they did that, and they joined forces with Morningside Lenox Park Association, which formed in 1965, as well as Inman Park, as well as I think Stone Mountain, to fight this proposed highway. And again, longer story, but they won. Where the proposed interchange would have been in the Highlands is today Howell Park, named for anti-highway activist John Howell, who died from complications of HIV in 1988. Now, I always try to talk about cemeteries and neighborhoods, and Virginia Island has one. There's a long, complicated story with it, but the Todd Family or Todd Homestead Cemetery still exists. The reason there's drama is because it is it's tucked between residential homes and some people don't want you to access it. I'm not going to get into this on the podcast. I'll put a link to some articles that have been written about it. But it is pretty incredible to have this early settler cemetery still exist here. Today, Virginia Highland is competing with the Beltline and Ponsonby Market, which has taken a toll on some of its businesses. It, it certainly doesn't have the same place to be reputation that it did when I moved here 15 years ago. I still love this neighborhood. Again, if anybody wants to give me their house there, I will gladly move in. Um, but it's interesting to see how they've they've kind of been rebranding the neighborhoods and getting in new businesses in. And so I'm excited to maybe see it come back to a place that it was that when I first moved here. So there you have it, the story of Virginia Highland or the Highlands. I won't judge you. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or review where you listen to your podcast and you can visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.